If you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn to the book of 1 John, and we're going to start with a passage in 1 John, um, but we're going to um, move around a little bit this afternoon. But 1 John chapter 4, and I'm going to pray as we come, and let's ask that God would speak to us. Father, please would you help us by your Spirit. Father, please would we know this afternoon that although once we were your enemies, through Jesus we've been brought near. Through Jesus we can know you and be your friend, that we don't gather before you in fear of your judgment, but we gather before you because of your love. So Lord, we pray that we might know that and that in your love for us you might speak to us this afternoon. Lord, please, by your Spirit, would you grab hold of us and shape us and mold us Please, would this not just be an intellectual exercise where we think about an issue, but would it be a heart exercise where you change us? Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me read um, 1 John chapter 4. Uh, We're just going to read verses 19 to 21, where the Apostle John writes this. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he's given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So this is what we're about in these four weeks. We're saying, okay, God has loved us. We've seen it in Hosea. I can swap mics, yep. I'm going to swap mics. Are we happy? Great. I'm sorry if you didn't hear anything that I've said in the last few It's probably the wisest things that's ever been said by a human being, but it's lost forever. Um, that was a joke. Um, Right, here's what we're doing, okay? Here's what we're doing. God has loved us. We've seen it in Hosea. He's loved us in an extraordinary way. He's loved us in um, a way which is proactive and compassionate and just and constant. that's, That's how God has loved us. And as God has loved us, so we must love one another. We began to think about that last week. And we're going to zoom in on a specific issue this afternoon. And that is... What does it look like for us to love one another as brothers and sisters? In particular, how do we relate to one another as men and women? Now, I guess um, after all that's happened this week, this feels like, um, in one sense, an appropriate time to talk about this, but also a hard time. But this has been planned for several months This is not a sermon just in response to what's been said. This is something we've been meaning to talk about and planning to talk about. And we're going to think um, about that. And the first, the place we're going to start um, is with some basic anthropology, right? That's my uh, first heading. Some basic anthropology. Uh, That just means what does it mean to be human? Um, Because it seems to me that if we're going to understand how we relate to each other as men and women, it's really important that we understand what it means to be men and women. And we may say, come on, John, I think I know that. Well, let's just be clear on what the Bible has to say on this subject. So if you've got a Bible, let's go right back to the beginning when God first created humanity, and let's just see um, what 
what he did and what he said. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Genesis 1, verse 27. It says this, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So here's the deal. Humanity is created in the image of God. Human beings have a unique dignity that we reflect God. Hippos are great. They are enormous fun to watch, not much fun to swim with, but hippos are terrific, but they don't image God. We do. Now, you need to just allow that understanding of what it means to be human to sink in. You bear the image of God. But it's very explicit in Genesis chapter 1, isn't it, that the way that we image God is as male and female. The image of God is seen in our plurality. In other words, I cannot image God on my own. I, on my own, am not the image of God, the sum total of the image of God for the world to see, which in many ways is a great relief because that would be fairly limited. No, the image of God is when when humanity lives in community with others, and in particular when humanity lives in community with those who are different to them. So here is our understanding of what it means to be human. Made in the image of God, created by God as male and female. And that seems to me that in our world at the moment, the idea of man and woman is under attack. Just this week, Manchester University sent out guidance to their staff to try and limit language which is gender-specific. So you shouldn't talk about mother and father. You should talk about parents and guardians, because we don't want to cause any offense by talking about specific genders. Now, that seems to me to be a fundamental mistake, because to be male and female is to be how God created us to be. That's what we are made. It's how we function as the image of God. So let's be under no illusions. In these debates around what it means to be man and woman and what it means to be male and female, there is so much at stake. The image of God is at stake. This is why these things matter. If we are going to be politically correct we may well find that we cannot be theologically correct on this issue. Now, please don't hear me saying that that means we should be harsh or condemning or cruel about those who have struggles in this area. I know, I understand that there are massive issues going on. But we should not let our concern for the individual and our right compassion for the individual override the reality of who God has made us to be. Because our dignity and our worth and our value comes from being men and women, male and female, in the image of God. Equal in dignity. That's why as 
this starting point in our basic anthropology is we must understand how valuable both men and women equally in the image of God, together in the image of God, are before him. And this is not just talking about marriage. You may say, well, this is just talking about marriage, man and woman. No, this is talking about much more than that. This is talking about community. You see, the first man and the first woman in Genesis are not just the first marriage. They're the first church. Man and woman, together in the image of God. And then you see that in the way that Jesus interacted with women, right? You see, Jesus, when he came into this world, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, came into this world that he had made. And you see how he valued the women that he interacted with. You see how he treasured and treated with dignity and respect and value and worth because he understood, because he'd made them, he understood the image of God in both men and women together in relationship. So that's our first stop in our basic anthropology. But obviously, since Genesis 1, something big has gone wrong. And our second stop is the image of God is now the fallen image. You see, what has happened is that that perfect relationship has been spoiled. And so now, often the relationship between men and women has been marked by words like shame, fear, Exploitation, rule, dominion, power, distrust. These sorts of words have crept into our... They they weren't in the vocabulary in Genesis 1. But now a whole new section of the dictionary had to be created. Why? Well, because humanity sinned against God. And this is tragic And it leads to so much of the evil that we see in our world. Humanity now has a fractured relationship with one another, horizontally. Now, we see this evil in many ways in our world. Dip between men and women. And can I just say at this point, I I really want to... I want to be clear about this. Um... It's not just in our relationship between men and women. It's in our relationships with one another in all sorts of ways. And this week, as we've reacted to the stuff that, this shocking, horrific stuff that we've heard about Sarah Everard, rightly there have been those who have raised the issue of why we react so much about that issue and perhaps less about other issues, particularly when it comes to issues of racism. And I want to say, guys, we've got to get this, we've got to think about this. And I was rightly called out on that this week. And I... Thank God that someone said that. Because it's important that we're able to talk honestly to one another where we get things wrong. And I want you to know how heavily the issue of racial justice has been on my heart in the last year. And there is a group of us who are wrestling with these issues. And we are making slow progress, but we are making progress. And there's going to be, you're going to be hearing stuff in the coming weeks. There's a survey which is going to lead to discussion groups. We really want that conversation to happen. And we want passionately to make that conversation serious and to engage in that seriously. So please don't hear me saying that this one matters more than this one. It, it doesn't. But this is the one we're talking about today. 
the fractured relationships between men and women. So these relationships, and it's not all relationships between men and women, is it? I mean, there's some great relationships. Let's not be too downbeat. You do catch glimpses, don't you, sometimes? We say, this is great. But there is a lot of toxicity. And most of us this week have very heavy hearts after all that we've seen in the news. But the stuff that's been in the news this week isn't news to most of you, is it? For at least half of you in this room, this is your daily experience of that fear and that anxiety and, and that experience of being treated wrongly. The Me Too campaign of a few years ago brought to light a whole load of evil in our relationships. And all of that stems from a fracturing of relationship with God. And so the everyday sexism that still exists in our society, the unwanted advances, the comments, the glances, the, the approaches, that, all of that stuff, it stems from this fractured, broken, and toxic relationship. And I wish I could say that the church was the place where that wasn't the case. But reality is that even creeps into the church, right? Because we are fallen. So here's our basic anthropology. Men and women created in the image of God with extraordinary, equal dignity and worth together to image him to, to the world. It's beautiful, but it's, been, it's fallen because human beings turned away from God and turned in on ourselves. And now instead we treat one another with shame and distrust and fear. And it's not just men treating women that way. Women treat men that way too, right? It's not that women are perfect and men aren't. This week the focus has been very much on the way men treat women, rightly. But let's not pretend, and I was talking to someone earlier today who was saying, let's not make out that it's nothing the other way as well. But there's a third part to our basic anthropology. And that is that this image of God, which is a fallen image, is being renewed. <laughs> See, here's the good news, right? The good news is that God so loved this world that he said, I'm not content for my beautiful image to now be spoiled. And so like a master painter who sees his painting defaced and spoiled, God painstakingly is peeling back and is fixing and is coming to sort out and to heal and to restore the beauty of the image. And so God sent his son to restore us. And in Ephesians 2, God talks about Jesus bringing a new humanity. That's what the church is. The church is a new humanity. If human beings were created to image God, the church is where we are being renewed in knowledge in the image of our creator. That's Colossians 3. It's all over the place in the New Testament. That's what God is doing. We're being made to be the image of God again. You see, in our individualistic society, we think, I am the image of God. No, we are the image of God. And we image him in how we treat one another. We image him as we are male and female together. And it cost Jesus his life on a cross. And it's only as you are restored to God 
that you then begin to be restored to one another to be this image. That's the basic anthropology. Now, what I want to do is, I've done that very quickly, and there's tons and tons more stuff to say, and it's very frustrating not to be able to do more, but I want, to get to, I want us to be practical this afternoon. I don't want us just to kind of faff around in abstract ideas. I want us to be able to talk about what this might look like. So what, what might this look like within the church? Well, here's, here's a verse that I think might encapsulate some of it. Um, if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. One Timothy chapter five, and I'm going to just read verse one, and I want you to see the way that um, it speaks. Um, Paul is writing to Timothy, a church pastor. He says, "Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters, with absolute purity." Just think about that verse. Here is Paul's vision for what the church, this new humanity, should look like. How should it operate? Well, Paul, as he grasps for an image, his primary image is family. I want you to be a family. And it seems to me that every single person in the church will fit into one of those four categories. You're either an older man, an older woman, a younger man, or a younger woman. Which means this, these two verses encapsulate everything about how you're to treat one another. You want to know the basic starting point of how to treat each other? Well, if he's an old man, treat him as a father. If she's an older woman, treat, him like, treat her like a mother. If he's a young man, treat him like a brother. And if he's a young woman, treat her like a sister with absolute purity. That's how it's supposed to work. Now, that has a huge amount to say about how we build those relationships. And in many ways, as I've studied this this week, I've thought, oh, man, I'd love to do a series on each, a sermon on each of those categories. I'd love to talk about how, you, how we relate to older men, particularly as I get older. It seems to be more and more important to me. I'd love to think about how we relate to the older women in our church and the blessing that older women are in our church who can be like mothers to us. I'd love to talk about how we can be, have better brother-brother and sister-sister relationships where friendships, deep friendships can grow. And I want to encourage you to pursue those. But we are focusing on brothers and sisters. And Paul particularly says, do that with absolute purity. Purity. Of course, that changes. What does purity mean? I mean, purity is a word that we sort of like in our world. It's, it's quite a... It's a nice word, isn't it? Pure. It's a word that advertisers use a lot. This is pure juice from the pure mountains of Costa Rica in the pure air filtered through pure water. You know, we, we sort of love... That doesn't make any sense. But we sort of... It sounds nice because it's pure. Everyone wants everything to be pure. No one wants something that's polluted and contaminated, Right? Contaminated water from the polluted Thames. No, we love purity. But what does it mean? What does it mean to live in purity? 
Well, I think there's two ways we can get this wrong. So let me show you the two ways we could get it wrong and see if these resonate with you. And then we'll think about how we might begin to try and get it right. I think for quite a long time, um, this idea of purity became a very sort of negative idea. In other words, purity was about avoiding anything that might pollute you and contaminate you. In other words, it was kind of just got to keep impurities out. So the main way that I would pursue purity as a, as a young man, the main way I, that I was told to pursue purity was just avoid. Avoid anything that might make you impure. And the standard story, right, the, the story that told me how to treat women with purity was Genesis 39. Because in Genesis 39, it's the story of Joseph. And Joseph's this great hero who was a man of great purity. And one day there was Potiphar's wife and she, she was an evil temptress. And she said to Joseph, come to bed with me. And Joseph says, no, no, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And we go, yes, Joseph, you're so awesome and you're such a hero. And she day after day said, Joseph, come to bed with me, come to bed with me. And eventually she grabbed him. And we're told that what Joseph did is he... He ran. He left his cloak in her hand and he ran away. And do you know what? For many years, I think I thought that is what basically was the good way to approach women. The danger, right, of saying perhaps that's how we should approach purity. There's danger. I might, be, I might be tempted in a wrong way. So let me just be very clear, and I know I'm painting a caricature, and you're probably all far too wise and sensible to see this, but I think this can slip in. Let me be very clear. The Bible does say that you're to flee, but what you're to flee from is sexual immorality, not women or men. You see, the avoiding any contact with men and women can lead to very odd and distorted and dysfunctional relationships. Obviously, it has a number of significant issues attached to it, this avoidance as your number one strategy for purity. Firstly, if avoidance is your number one strategy, it implies that the opposite sex are dangerous. So in the same way that I might, you know, avoid um, lions, I, you know, if there's a sign that says danger, lions, I might say, okay, fine, well, I won't go there. You say danger, men, danger, women, and we say, well, fine, I won't go there. It implies they're dangerous. But no, what is dangerous is sexual immorality. That's what we're to flee from. That's what we're to avoid. All of us have sinful hearts. All of us have sinful desires in the area of sexual desire and pleasure. All of us do. They'll be expressed in different ways for each one of us, but we all have sinful desires. But the problem is the desire, not the person. And so we need to be very careful that we don't somehow transfer the, the blame from ourselves to them over there. Now, Jesus said from within, out of men's hearts comes sexual immorality. It's something inside of me. 
Therefore, I have to fight it in the power of the Spirit using the weapons that He gives me. Let's not try and push the blame on someone else. Well, it's your fault. And I think this happens a lot, right? It's your fault. Why did you go there? Why did you wear that? Why did you say that? Why did you do that? Rather than taking responsibility and saying, it's me. So let's own the sexual immorality that lurks within our hearts, but let's not let that destroy any hope of having friendships and relationships with people which God has created us for. Because the avoidance technique denies the goodness of the image of God as male and female. And it ends up with male-female relationships being highly awkward. Where we're just a bit sort of embarrassed about it. And what can happen in church, and I'm not saying this is what happens in global, I'm, not, I'm just saying this is what can happen, is that really the only reason for an interaction between a man and a woman within church is Romantic. And immediately the stakes are incredibly high. Because every conversation is kind of charged with this, is there something here? Is there something going on here? And it actually makes it impossible for healthy relationships to grow. Everything becomes so intense. So there's the avoiding technique, but what Rightly, there's been a number of people in recent days who've been pushing back at that kind of teaching. They're just avoid, avoid, avoid. Um, And I've read a number of books in preparation for for teaching this stuff. And one of them in particular called um, Why Can't We Be Friends by Amy Bird, um, which is helpfully, very helpfully, pointing out the importance of male-female friendships, the, the goodness of male-female friendships, and challenging us to think harder about these issues. They remind us of the goodness of being brothers and sisters. And Amy Bird is really strong on this idea that we are brothers and sisters. And we can function as brothers and sisters and enjoy relationships with one another as brothers and sisters. Now, as you read those books, I think that they are nuanced, actually. I think they're careful in what they say. But I do think that there is a potential danger that they can lead us to becoming careless in our relationships with one another. That we might read those books and basically say, oh, great, I'm just going to go for it. (laughs) Without really thinking about the implications of our actions. And if avoiding is one danger, the other spectrum is to go, oh, I don't want to be an avoider. And we can become over-familiar. Not just familiar, not just family, but over-familiar. Where you kind of step over boundaries. You become more. You go beyond what is helpful and healthy. And the pendulum can swing so far the other way that we end up causing confusion and we end up causing hurt and misunderstandings and disappointment. Look, we cannot be naive about these things, right? If we're going to love each other rightly, we've got to see one person's friendship might be another person's... Are you romantically interested in me? 
or if you're married. One person's innocent coffee might be for the other person an invitation to go further. And we cannot be naive. And the problem is that if we throw away the avoid it, avoid it thing, we can end up being very naive. And I fear that those books, as helpful as I think they are, could be in danger of leading some who don't read it properly to excuse what might become an affair and might become deeply damaging. So there are the two, I, I think those are the two dangers that we can fall into, avoiding or being over-familiar. Right, oh man, time's nearly gone. Um, let's, let's get to positive. What are we supposed to do? Let's talk about what we're supposed to do. Well, it's not going to surprise you. Um, I think we should be proactive, compassionate, righteous, and constant in the way that we treat one another. I think those words will help us. Um, and I, I, yes, let me quickly go through those, and I've got some, other, some, some stuff to share from other people. Um, proactive in our relationships, not lazy, but working hard. That we treasure friendship as a good thing. We'd say, this is a great thing. Friendship is a good thing to pursue. But that we think about what we're doing in our friendships. That we think about who we can include, who we can invite, who we can spend time with. Friendship is not kind of a second best. A number of the books that I've read have made the point that when we use the phrase, oh, we're just friends, that is an incredibly unhelpful phrase. Because to be just friends means that friendship is sort of the, oh, well, it's not as, oh, no, no, we're not, we're not that, we're just friends. <laughs> no, no, you're friends. That's not just anything. To be friends is to be glorious and magnificent and to be imaging God. Don't ever think you're just friends. It's a beautiful thing. And it's easy for us to be passive. So I want to say, let's, let's be proactive. Right? Sometimes you think it's probably easier just not to bother. Because I'll probably end up getting it wrong or we'll, we'll say something wrong or we'll mess something up. No, let's not, let's not settle for that. Let's be proactive. Second, let's be compassionate. I love this. Here, okay, here's, here's a helpful principle for you. I think brothers and sisters have an over... Okay, not all brothers and sisters. You may hate your brother or sister. I get that. In a lovely kind of ideal world, I think brothers and sisters protect one another. I think that's what they do. When push comes to shove and you're at school and your little brother is being beaten up, however much you hate him and however much you annoy, you, he annoys you, as soon as someone picks on your little brother, you're like, no, you don't do that. You don't touch my little brother. That. That's compassion. That's what happens when brothers and sisters say, no, I will protect you. My overwhelming desire is to protect you, to keep you from harm, to keep you safe. I think that's how we treat one another. Imagine if that was our, our default position. I just want you to be safe. You know, I think that's how Jesus treated women. 
Let me just show you one story from Luke chapter 7. There was a story when um, Jesus was having dinner at um, a Pharisee's house. And a woman came in who clearly was a woman of bad character, bad reputation. People knew who she was, possibly a prostitute. We don't know for sure, but someone who was obviously notoriously bad. She came in, she started to weep, and she's wetting Jesus' feet. She's wiping his feet with her hair. And you can feel the hostility in the crowd, and they're getting ready to unleash all their anger at her. Who do you think you are? How dare you treat this man like this? Get out, you whore. Get out, you horrible, horrible woman. It's Jesus who leaps to her defense. He protects her. In fact, what he does, he doesn't just protect her. Um, He tells Simon, the the guy whose house he's at, he says, Simon, you didn't wash my feet, but she has. And there's this beautiful phrase in that story where it says, then he turns to the woman and said to Simon. Think about that. Here's the woman at his feet, weeping, washing her. He turns to the woman, and he says to Simon, and he talks to the woman. He's looking at the woman. We don't even know her name. He's looking at the woman as he talks to Simon. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? I think the implication is he locks eyes with her to protect her. And we would expect it to be Woman, do you see this man, Simon? You should be more like him. He's the religious one. But Jesus says to the Simon, do you see this woman? You need to be more like her. Here's Jesus who defends, protects. He could have exposed her. He could have exploited her. could have abused her. But Jesus protects her. Oh, I tell you what, brothers and sisters, if we loved each other like that, that we cared for each other like that, and we were bothered about one another's security like that. I think that would be deeply challenging and helpful and powerful. And it's also true that it's righteous, that we treat one another with honor, that we would conduct ourselves kindly in righteousness, that we would do what is right, that we would avoid anything which is wrong. I think that means if you're single, to be honest about your intentions, to be honest about what you're thinking, honest about what you're feeling. In preparation for this, um, in fact, this morning, I had conversations with about five or six different people because I said to them, tell me some stuff that you, you, you want me to say. Tell me some stuff that you think we need to hear from all sorts of different voices in our church family. I did it anonymously because I figured it would be a bit awkward to get someone up the front and say, what do you, how do you think men should treat women? <laughs> so I asked people on, anonymously. And one of the people um, I spoke to this morning said, um, uh, talked about awkward conversations. And said, awkward conversations don't mean they're wrong. We're too polite. And we sort of want to avoid any conversations that might make us feel uncomfortable. And so sometimes things don't get said that need to be said. Awkward conversations where you say what you really think. You're honest about things. And it does feel embarrassing, right? And it is hard. But that's how families work. We're not a family if we can't have awkward conversations with one another. And there's grace. And there's to, to heal that embarrassment and that hurt. 
So let's be righteous in what we do. Righteous in our intentions towards one another. Righteous in the ways that we treat one another. Not overstepping boundaries. If someone makes it clear that they're not interested, step back. If someone makes it clear that they, that they don't want to pursue things further, you've got to step back and we've got to be kind and, and, and righteous towards one another. And constant. To live in such a way that people know where they're at. So flirting is not constant behavior. Right? Flirting is up and down behavior, right? You don't know where you're at. One minute they seem to be this, one minute they seem to be that. I don't know where I'm at. Oh, that we'd be constant. That we'd be people who are faithful in the way that we treat people. Flirting gives confusing messages. And I think often we do that. And sometimes that's because we're confused ourselves, right? <laughs> so sometimes we do get this wrong. I don't know what I think. I don't know what I feel. And, and we can't avoid awkward conversations all the time. But let's have those. Let me just say, if you are um, married, then I want to make crystal clear to you, your marriage is an exclusive relationship. Your marriage is not one friendship among many. It's, your ex- it's an exclusive relationship which is different to all your other friendships. And therefore, your marriage matters. And, and I want to encourage you to have friendships together. I want to encourage you to be involved in one another's friendships as a husband and wife. I want to encourage you to have friendships with, with men and women, but to have them in a way which is honoring to your husband and wife. A way which is open. A way which allows no room for misunderstanding or for sexual sin to creep in. Because you're kidding yourself if you think, actually, I just like talking to this person. They listen really well to me. That's a warning sign. That should be your husband. That should be your wife. And by all means, have other friends with, but let's be careful. Let me tell you some of the other things that um, people messaged me. Um, I think these are really helpful. Um, here's some things that, uh, just as we finish, that I, I hope might be helpful to you and see what you think. Um, friendships between brothers and sisters within church is such a blessing, and I'm sad that we don't see it too much within Globe. These relationships are so encouraging when there's communication between each other, when there's an openness with the how each other feel about the relationship. This prevents from anyone being misled or hurt. I think it's helpful when boundaries are put in place. Now, this is important. These relationships can be tainted by onlookers, suggesting that it could be something more to the friendship. You know, the kind of nudge, nudge, wing, oh, you went out for coffee with... Look, it's okay. If they went out for coffee, perhaps they're just... Not just friends. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so bad at this. I might as well give up now. We don't have to assume that just because two people are taught, let's, let's be kind. It's not kind to joke and gossip. It's not kind to tease people. That's not kind. It puts pressure on. So this, this message went on um, when that kind of happens. This can be unhelpful as it can result in the individual putting hope in something, developing from a friendship and clinging on to signs and things that may suggest this friendship something more. You see, when other people are going, oh, you know, let's be careful. 
You see, we're all very different in our church family. There are members of our church family who are same-sex attracted and who need friendships, deep, intimate, close friendships with brothers and sisters. And I sometimes think we're, we're failing sometimes in those. I also think we're doing well. I see it. I see good things happening. Even today, I know... I can't tell you the details because you'll work out who it is. But I know that someone today did something which I just thought, that's what brothers do. They realize it's Mother's Day. They realize that someone is going to struggle because it's Mother's Day. And so they go around to see their sister and to do something kind for them. Because that's what brothers do. You see, that's not tainted by... That's just loving. That's saying, I want to protect you. So I want to encourage you to keep going. Oh, I've got oh, so many other things. Um, yeah, there's... Uh, um, let, me just, let me just read you a couple... Oh, I need to stop. This is terrible. I'm really sorry. This is, like, awful. Um, let me just read you a couple other things. Um, here was a guy who said... Um, at one point, I did feel quite a pressure to do something about the singleness problem which seems to suggest that guys were at fault for people being single, which may be the case, but I don't think helpfully celebrates the plausibility of singleness. Other times when there's been a time of trying to figure out emotions, thoughts, interactions towards someone, it's been made harder by gossip quickly emerging or a big push to decide and commit straight out rather than pursue a more natural growth in friendship. You see, right? People are wrestling with these things. This is not easy. Um, and I want to encourage us to be compassionate and kind. Guys, we need to stop. And um, you're going to have a chance to talk about this some more in your small groups uh, this week. But this is a conversation we need to be having, right? Male and female created in the image of God. Fallen, that's why it's hard. That's why we get it wrong. That's why we, we mess up. But being redeemed by Jesus. So let's be a church family who treat one another like brothers and sisters, neither avoiding nor stepping over boundaries and becoming over-familiar but being brothers and sisters to one another. Who could you be a brother to? Who could you be a sister to? Who could you protect? Honestly, openly, constantly. Let's pray that God would make us a church like that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your perfect design. We thank you for men and women, male and female, together imaging you. Lord, we pray for your help. We pray that you'd help us to honor you. We pray that you'd help us to have awkward conversations where we need to do that. We pray that you'd help us to protect one another, to love one another. Lord, we have so much to learn in this area, but we thank you that we are a family who get to work this out together. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just say, if this is something that you're particularly struggling with, or you think, actually, I don't know what to do about this situation, please ask for help. Go to someone you trust and say, help, can you help me think this thing through? Often those conversations can then help you to explore and to work out what the best next step is.